Hello, and welcome to the Energy Environment Economy Podcast, produced by EBC, the Environmental Business Council of New England. My name is Anne Geisinger. I'm Executive Director at EBC, and I'll be your host for this episode. Here at Energy Environment Economy, we talk about the business of the environment, from grid modernization, renewable energy, to solid waste management, stormwater, climate adaptation, brownfields redevelopment, the list goes on. The energy and environmental industries are in an exciting time, and we're here to explore it all. So today, I'm here with Matt Dunn. PhD candidate at the University of Rhode Island's Graduate School of Oceanography and a steep Superfund trainee, which translates to Sources, Transport, Exposure, and Effects of PFAS. Figured we needed to uh, describe that. (laughs) So welcome, Matt. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you become a scientist? What is your research all about at URI? I think it's really valuable for students and other young people to hear about all the various twists and turns in people's paths into how they got to where they are. So really want to highlight all the opportunities that are in the energy and environmental industries. Yeah, I'm a bit atypical for a lot of um, oceanographers because I actually knew I wanted to be an oceanographer at a young age and kind of built my education and stuff around it um, all the way up through undergrad and until I got to PhD. However, I never expected to do chemistry and, and organic chemistry and PFAS research. I always thought I would be on a ship somewhere. Down to whales? Yeah, walking around the beach, you know, um, working in a bathing suit or looking at coral reefs. So there was definitely some twists and turns to get to PFAS specifically. So as a side note, do you know how to snorkel? Do you have your scuba certification? Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Scuba certified and and with a couple of different licenses. So what's the coolest uh, fish, mammal, whatever that you've seen in your scuba-ing? Probably a whale shark, just because they're absolutely massive and it's... There's a lot of stuff that's that big in the ocean, but most of it will kill you when you see it. So it's really cool to see something that big, but not dangerous, you know, to actually swim alongside it. Oh, that's really cool. Where did you see that? Uh, During my study abroad in college, when I went down to the Cayman Islands to do coral reef ecology research. That's awesome. Well, that's great. A lot of your research is about PFAS. And as you said, you didn't expect to go that direction, but what are um, maybe some of the key topics that you're exploring through your research right now? There's two main things that my my PhD research has been focused on. The first one is development of a passive sampler for PFOS and passive sampler. What that is, is essentially a really cheap, cost-efficient device that measures PFOS over time. It's called passive because it doesn't require energy. It doesn't require power source. You basically just leave it there in the water for, you know, two weeks, four weeks, and it's taking up a little bit more PFOS each day giving you like an average representation of the water profile during that time. And then once we developed that and and figured out how it worked, my work has transitioned to what I think is more fun, which is the fate and transport of PFAS. So where do they come from? Where do they go? How do they move around? And being an oceanographer, what's different about my work is I have a lot of focus on how the environment affects PFAS. So does rain mobilize PFAS or does it dilute PFAS? Does it draw them down from the air? Does it put them back up into the air Um, and focusing a little bit more on that kind of stuff than just typical chemistry? So with the passive samplers, you're saying that they sit in the water for a period of time. Do you then switch them out with a brand new sampler to to get more long-term data? Yeah, so we typically, there's a bunch of different types of passive samplers. The one I work with um, specifically, we recommend using for about two weeks, but we also use them for as much as a month. And then you switch them out, you know, put a a couple clean ones there and take it back to the lab and measure it. But they're actually reusable. So once you've taken it back to the lab and measured it, 
and gotten, you can, you know, clean it and just put it back out. So you don't actually need that many of them to cover, you know, a year long study of a site. And if you're using uh, the passive sampling, then um, do you know, does it somehow record the date? Like if there's a big rainfall, do you know that there was a big rainfall? Can you, can you correlate that with a spike in PFAS, for example? Yeah, or yeah. It doesn't record. So there's no recording. This is not an electronic right. device. So you right. are recording everything because you're the scientist. So a lot of what I do is, is looking to see if we can see those spikes. I have a whole chapter of my PhD focused on, you know, different deployment links and different sources of PFAS, some that might be coming from the air, some that might be coming from tributaries mm -hmm. um, and looking to see those spikes. So it's really about how you use them. That's what makes them great. You can use them to answer any question. If you know during hurricane season, there's going to be a lot more rain, put them out before and after hurricane season, as well as during the hurricane season and, and sort of compare. Right. So a lot of the questions that you can answer with these passive samplers is about correlating environmental activity like rainfall storms i don't know uh, industry that kind of changes how it's production produces some sort of product over time um are there other things that you can explore with a passive sampler beyond just sort of correlating these things in time yeah there's so many other things um I prefer doing the environmental stuff, but I'm probably the minority in the passive sampling world because a lot mm. of people use them for monitoring. Um, you could use them to monitor drinking water wells. You right. can use them to monitor groundwater flow and fluxes of PFAS. You can use them to identify sources of PFAS by saying, some, let's put them up and down this river and see if we see a spike somewhere. Um, right. So there's, there's a ton of things. You can use them for detection just to see if there's PFAS there. Right. Is there anything that you really shouldn't be using a passive sampler for then that it just doesn't work for? I mean, <laughs> it's it's tough because like my whole job has been yes. to prove that they work really well, which we're right. doing, and it takes a long time to do that. But we see we see that they're working, and and we see a path forward for them. Yeah. So no, I mean, I I say the the best case scenario for passive sampling is that a PFOS is that it would replace traditional water grabs. So mm -hmm. if you're doing a bioaccumulation study and taking fish or plankton out of a, a river or, or out of the ocean, you know, we would say, hey, use a passive sampler instead of water grabs, put it, you know, deploy it for the start and end of your, of your, you know, bioaccumulation study. Or if you're okay. looking at a flux from groundwater leaching, use these instead. So that's the best case scenario. Okay. Right. So if we talk about these samplers, you got to clean them out, right? And so what do you do? How do you dispose of PFOS contaminated stuff? <laughs> well, they're not a remediation tool. So we're not, they don't necessarily take up a ton of PFOS in the sense mm -hmm. that you're not like filtering all the PFOS out of your river. Right. Um, they're taking up very small amounts of PFAS, and we need that PFAS because that's how we measure it. We inject that right. in, into an a, you know an instrument, an LCMS. Got it. So you you basically soak it in methanol for a couple times, and you get this big volume of methanol, which you you uh, concentrate it down by just evaporating it, and that's mm -hmm. what you inject into an instrument to measure. So got it. Um, and then after that, it's clean because you've extracted all the PFAS out with that methanol. Right. Right. So if we talk a little bit about the pathways for PFAS, water, air, soil, maybe, um, when it comes to water, what have you noticed through your research that about the plumes, about the, um, 
the fate and transport, as you talk about with, with some of the things that you've learned through what you're doing? Yeah. Uh, my favorite project I've worked on is one that I'm preparing to do submit any day now, um, looking at basically the impact of textile mills on a river. Mm. And it was super cool project. It's, it's sad because, you know, there's PFAS everywhere, um, <laughs> yes. which isn't fun, but it was a cool project in the sense that it was really rewarding. And looking at the seasonal trends was really interesting because a lot of people think of PFAS as just not really interacting much with the environment around. They don't, they think the traditional sense of, of a lot of the view of PFAS has been there. They sort of operate under different rules, but you know, for example, in the winter, there wasn't as much PFAS as there was in the summer. And it, you know, that was because that specific year it didn't rain that much in the winter. We think, we think that's the reason. So it didn't okay. push the PFAS out of these old waste lagoons Okay. In, into the river. Um, but a lot of people would say, well, if it rains more, there's more water in the river. So it should be diluted, right? The PFAS should be diluted. There's more water, same amount of PFAS. Sure. And we don't really see that so much. Um, and that's something I really want to explore further with shorter, shorter deployments of the passive sampler. So yeah, that's interesting that you would think more water, more dilute. But from my perspective, I think, well, more water means more of its traveling, right? More of its moving around in the environment versus just sitting in the, the river as the river flows down. Exactly. So, yeah. Have you, have you talked about in your research, looked up in your research, anything about all the other different uh, places we can find PFAS? You know, I think air sampling is something that some of our EBC members are starting to really need to do as part of their consulting work. Yeah. So we have, a, we have a whole team of, of people who do air sampling. Um, obviously I do water, but they do brilliant work and they basically do the same thing as me proving how these things work and then using them to solve problems and questions. Okay. Um, and air is becoming, um, you know, to give a broad overview, air, air is becoming a big deal because a lot of the newer replacement PFAS that they're using instead of ones that are banned, mm -hmm. are they are volatile. So mm -hmm. they start out as these compounds that don't want to be in the water, they want to be in the air. And when they're released to the air, they can ultimately be broken down, degra uh, degraded, uh, metabolized all these things that happen in the environment and they turn into the PFOS ice study in the water. Okay. So it's sort of like if you know you're releasing PFOA without releasing PFOA, but you're releasing something that turns into PFOA once right. it gets out, once it gets out in the air. So it's sort of a missing link right now in the mm -hmm. transport model. Mm -hmm. When it comes to a lot of your your passive samplers, are you contributing any knowledge to a potential background? PFOS, anthropogenic background. <laughs> oh, everyone at the EBC probably. Is we all want to know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they all want to know that. And I I just fundamentally, I don't believe there's a PFOS background. There should be okay. zero. Um, you can do geospatial, geospatial analysis to, to sort of point out your sources. And I've done stuff like that to say that, you know, yes, there's PFOS in this river, but we're really confident it's coming from here using statistical approaches. Mm -hmm. um, but the only place you can really say there's a background is, is, uh, you know, places that have been contaminated for 50, 60 years already. The background's really high because they've been contaminated for 50, 60 years. So yeah, I, I just fundamentally, I, I don't believe in that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting that it also relates to a lot of the recent hubbub around EPA's announcement of an MCL for some PFAS compounds. Um, is that going to impact anything that you do? Does it impact your view of your research? 
Um, it's good for my research in the sense that it gets people talking about PFOS and it's exciting. And in addition to doing research, I really spend a lot of my time doing public outreach and science communication. So, so I'm mm -hmm. always talking about these things and trying to get people's attention and, and help them learn about it. So that's great. Um, my passive samplers that I use are perfectly suitable for monitoring people's groundwater drinking wells or, or public drinking sources. I don't do that in my research, but there's no one stopping from using these passive samplers to ultimately test some of those right. water, water supplies for, for these new EPA guidelines in the future. Right, right. Um, so sounds like that really does speak to sort of what does it mean for PFAS monitoring as we move into the, the, the future of having an MCL? It means integrating passive samplers and other technologies to start doing a lot more monitoring. Yeah, and you know, even if my passive sampler is not the end-all be-all of PFOS passive sampling, it's it's more important that we we use it because it's really it's it's really simpler and less labor intensive than doing all these grab samples. Mm -hmm. um, if you know, it's it, these PFOS enforcement is wonderful, but it's also really expensive. It's expensive to run yeah. samples. It's expensive to collect samples, and, and it takes a lot of time to process water samples. So, yeah. if you can replace you know, 30 daily water grabs in a month right. with one passive sampler or two passive samplers. Now you have to analyze two samples instead of 30 or 60 or 90 mm -hmm. to, to, you know, look at your water source. Um, so the, the impact is, will be whenever, you know, people like the EPA and, and, and states fully adopt these passive samplers, the impact will be really beneficial for the taxpayer, for, for the company, for right. the consulting firms, for everyone. Right, right. So I know that you're in Rhode Island. Um, you've been doing a lot of your, I'm assuming, almost all of your research in Rhode Island, potentially? A lot of it's been done in Cape Cod. I've also gone to Chicago okay. um, yeah. and contributed to projects much far, farther away, like Guam and uh, right. Bangladesh as well. Oh, that's cool. Um, so have you done any collaborations with state agencies? Have you worked with them on either giving them results of your data collection or working with them on sites they want to explore? Yeah, yeah, worked very closely with uh, Rhode Island DEM on this project I was talking about in the river with textile mills. They were partners right. in it, co-authors on it, and shared all the data with them. And I, I've gotten to meet with them pretty frequently to just be like, here's how we interpret this. Here's what you got to think about. And, uh, you know, hopefully that that has been a big part of their management decisions. Yeah, when it comes to those management decisions, you're... you're doing PhD candidate research work right now, are they also working with established um, scientists on some of this stuff? I mean, they, they need to make some decisions. How much of those decisions does it, does it rely on your research? Um, you know, they're working with everyone in steep, you know, so it's not just me. Yeah. They're working right. with very established scientists, um, you know, like my advisor, Dr. Reiner Lohman, who's probably the most established PFOS person you could find in the U.S. top five, you know. Right. Um, but I also take a lot of pride in the fact that they really view my work and my my word as just as important as anyone else's. But, um, yeah. you know, I think what my work for them is, is it's the fact gathering stage. I'm yeah. not sure they'll look at me or my work and necessarily write a law. Sure. Um, based off of it, but it's really important for them to know what's there, what could be an issue five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 mm -hmm. years. Um, and I think that's really where I fit in is giving them information they wouldn't have been able to get otherwise. Right. What they, what they do with that, you know, unless, yeah. they, unless they hire me, it's out of my control. That's right. Yep. <laughs> 
So when it comes to the sites they were working on, it sounds like they they these are old sites. These are no longer in use. These textile mills are not operating anymore. Um, are you have you worked on any sites or places where there are active? Yes. So this river is impacted by both active and closed textile mills, and they show okay. really different uh, yeah. source fingerprints, which is really interesting. And hopefully right. that, you know, that paper will be out soon. And it's uh, it's really it was really interesting. Do you think the active sites in terms of their are they actively using PFOS products? Are they creating them? Is there potential they're, down the road that they will switch what they're doing to have less PFOS output? What do you think? That's I mean, they're not creating PFOS in the sense that they're not a um, manufacturing. These are people buying something from a chemical company that's telling them it's safe because it doesn't have PFOA, it doesn't have PFOS. Sure. Um, so I do have some sympathy for a lot of these factories because they're told, this is fine, you can use this. And, and uh, even though it's not fine. Right. Um, so it's, it's, we really need to, because we don't treat PFOS as a, really as a family, we only manage, you know, what, six of them yeah. now? Right. And we really need to be managing like 400 of them or maybe yeah. even 4,000 of them, but um, it's tough. Um they're, they're, it's, you know, this is textile activity. So they're, they're using either fabrics that are probably already treated with yeah. PFOS when they arrive there, or right. they're, they're treating fabrics with, with, with um, sprays that contain PFOS. You know, they're probably just buying stuff that has PFOS in it, using it. Right. And it's being put out as waste, you know, as part of their either air or water emissions. Okay. So it's, it's probably both air and water is what you're, what yeah. you. And I, I would add that um, up until recently, the EPA has not had PFOS be reported or fluoropolymers be reported in their, their TRI, Toxics Release Inventory. Um, that's going to start to change um, specifically for textile mills. But, you know, mm -hmm. I, can, I can go online and tell you how many textile mills there are in the U.S., but there's nothing about, you know, what their releases of fluorinated chemicals are. Um, right. So hard to say. It's, it's hard to know. Right. Yeah, it is hard to know. I know that some of the presentations we've we've had for ABC have have really nailed that down. That it's really hard to know <laughs> what's happening, how things are moving around in the environment, and that's still a, a major question mark for a lot of the um, the teams out there doing you know samples and things like that. So you said you do a lot of science communication and um, talk with you know people about. Science, I guess. <laughs> what what do you talk about with people about PFOS specifically? How how do you frame that? How do you frame the conversation? A lot of it is just what products PFOS are in and how to reduce your reduce your um, exposure to them and and do things like if you're worried, you know, filter your water with Brita with a Brita filter. You know, if you can afford it, you know, here's here's examples of of uh, what you can install in your house. We talk about where PFOS come from, where they go, why you should be concerned about them, what specific health. Mm -hmm. um, impacts they have and and um just broadly just broadly make sure they're aware of pfos make sure they know there's resources out there whether it's through steep and our website and our science yeah um, but just generally there's all these people there's the environmental working group you know there's, there's right. the green science policy institute there's all these people doing great stuff um to keep everyone kind of in the loop about about pfos are you talking at public forums about this topic i mean how does this come up for you um, uh, all sorts of things. And it's not just me. I mean, this is a sure. huge part of what steep does everyone sure. from, from my advisor to other students, to people yeah. who are, whose job is, is science communication. We, mm -hmm. We're doing things like, you know, public well water or private, sorry, private well water testing for impacted communities. 
we're doing, we're hosting public science days in these impacted communities. We're having open house days as the University of Rhode Island's um, oceanography school and talking about our work. Uh, we're doing presentations. We're going to conferences. We're we're okay. doing a little bit of everything. We're doing podcasts. Other people from Steep have sure. done other, other podcasts. You know, we if sure. someone says, "Do you want to talk about PFOS?" We say yes. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, how how do you adjust how you talk about it based on the crowd that you're in front of? That is the biggest thing that scientists have been terrible at for like the past hundred years. Um, I'm really <laughs> fortunate because, like I said, with all this stuff that happens in Steep, they have trained us and, and emphasized you need to be able to talk about PFOS without you know, using a million acronyms without diving into technical yeah. terms. And yeah. we've gotten, I think we as the other students and trainees and scientists have gotten really good at it. Um, and, it, you know, you really just got to focus on the simplest explanation. And and even with scientists, I try to give the simplest explanation because at the end of the yeah. day, if you're just talking to someone face to face, yeah, you're not, you're not going to remember the scientific terms I list off, even if you are a scientist. Right. You're thinking about the cup of coffee you're going to go get at the intermission you know, of, the, of the meeting. So just keep it, just keep it simple, you know, make yeah. remind people why they should matter. Do you care about your health? Do you care about, you know, the fact sure. that you, you had no say in these compounds being there that usually gets people all riled up, you know, uh, that's true. Do you do anything yourself to try to manage your own exposure? Luckily the water here is relatively clean. I, you know, I try to avoid certain takeout containers that contain PFAS I, mm-hmm. or at least don't store my food in them. I, mm-hmm don't keep a lot of, you know, I don't wash certain outdoor materials or clothing that might have floor mm. in them in the washing machine, just stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that I find really interesting is, um, you know, the type of cooking where you yeah. use, you know, Teflon versus stainless steel. And my goodness, it is hard to scramble some eggs in a stainless steel pan. So, <laughs> yep. And, and, and I have, you know, Teflon pans that I inherited, you know, from whoever lived here before, but, uh, and I still use them because you know what, I'm a broke grad student. I can't go out and buy uh, ceramic pans that are really nice, but really expensive. So, yeah. so I, you know, as it's one thing I, when we're going back to it, like, how do you talk to people? It's like, I'm the same as them. I don't have any money. I can't go out and fully treat my water. Maybe one day I will be able to, when I get a job and finish sure. my PhD in a few months, but for most of my adult life, I haven't been able to do that. And I, I pay right. my own bills and I got to eat out of the same, the same Teflon pan you do. And you know, it, this impacts me very much. And I, I think that is really, that really levels the ground with people. You're not talking down to them. You're saying, Hey, we are both experiencing this. That's very true. So um, when it comes to your sort of future directions that you want to take, um, are you interested in future directions of research? Are you interested in applying what you do um, in some way? Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking to do applied work. Um, I see myself as a problem solver, even with my PhD research. Um, you know, they presented me with a problem and it was my job to find a solution. And my research is very different from a lot of other people at, mm-hmm. at you know, at grad school. And I loved that. Mm-hmm. So I, I always want to keep my research, whatever I do, whether it's for a consulting firm, for the EPA, for whoever, sure. I want to I keep it grounded in stuff that matters and can be applied to answer questions. Right, right. Well, that's great. Um, when it comes to the other folks on your team there at URI, what are they um, interested in doing? And, and have they worked with you? Have you had some cross collaboration? Oh, yeah. I mean, we all work with each other on everything. Um, Within our own lab, we work with mm-hmm. each other, obviously, because there are other oceanographers who do air and sea and water and right. bi- and biota. So we're always collaborating, but we also work with pharmacists and toxicologists and 
lawyers and <laughs> biologists, you know, to to understand how these things that we're measuring, what do they equate to in a human body or in a fish or mm-hmm. in, uh, you know, the genomic sense. Um, mm-hmm. So there's always, always, or we work with engineers and, and there's always collaboration in, in almost everything we do. Yeah. Uh, that makes a lot of sense because I think as an academic, you're you're in a great position to communicate with a lot of different people and work. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of engineering that goes into a passive sampler, um, and you got to f- figure that stuff out with somebody who knows how to help you with it. So, exactly. So we we were able to just you know knock on the person's door next door and be like, you know, can you explain a mass flux model to me because mm-hmm. that might actually explain what's happening in my passive sampler. And then okay, we, let's work on that together. You know, so it's it's super helpful. Yeah. Well, that's great. Is there anything else that you would want to discuss, talk about before we wrap up? You know, stay tuned. Uh, yeah. You know, a lot of my work, I think, is because uh, I'm, I'm wrapping up. So a lot of it's about to it, be out in the world. And hopefully people will see it as not just academic uh, work for the sake of work, but they'll see that it's stuff that, you know, you as a consultant or you as an EPA position could really use. And as an impacted community, you should use as well. So. So when are you defending your thesis? Uh, set a date this morning. I don't know if it'll be final, but it, late June. So. All right. Well, we'll be thinking about you in late June, hopefully. <laughs> Everything Thank I'm you. sure will go spectacularly and you'll end up being a Dr. Dunn. <laughs> yeah. I don't want anyone to ever call me that, but I will be it. <laughs> well, I'll remember that in the future then. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Matt Dunn. Emerging contaminants are complex, especially PFAS. And I appreciate Matt's perspective on fate and transport and all of his research on passive sampling and and what it can do for PFAS monitoring. You'll find links from the discussion in the show notes, as well as a link back to the EBC website, ebcne.org. This is a new podcast. We're just starting to put out our episodes. So please like, rate, review, leave a comment, whatever platform you're on. The staff and myself, we want to read them all. We want to take to heart what you say as we put on more episodes. We'll see you next time for a discussion about wetland science, the intersection between wetland science and climate, and all things wetlands. Energy Environment Economy is a production of the Environmental Business Council of New England. Thank you to EBC Administrative Coordinator Stephanie Sukar for editing the episode and managing the branding and marketing, to Events Assistant Ashley Gray for her research and notes, and to EBC intern Anna Wilcox for her wordsmithing. Music is only forward by Roman Senec Music 2023.